Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. back to the Brian McClaney Head Show. This is episode 90, Made It to 90 program. So glad to be here. Glad to have you back on the program. Before we get started, just want to remind you of a few things. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. Just search for Brian McClanahan with an O, and you'll find me on all those social media outlets. Also, if you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, and you give me an email address, I will give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. So just go on over there, Brian McClanahan, that's Brian with an O, dot com, and shoot me an email address, and I'll give you a couple of goodies. Also, a couple other things. If you are interested in helping support The Brian McClanahan Show, you can go to Brian McClanahan forward slash support, and you can send me a quarter or a penny, I don't care, whatever you want to throw at me, I'll take it. I'm putting my hat out on the floor, and if you would like to help keep the lights on and help keep the podcast going, I appreciate anything you want to contribute. And also, just want to remind you, and of course, you heard the commercial for it before we started, but just want to remind you again, if you want to get in on the giveaways for my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, you can go out there and go to blamehamilton.com. Click on the little button that says get your giveaways and enter the contest. It'll take you to the page that explains everything. But I've got some really cool stuff to give you if you'll just pre-order a book. And I would enjoy it if you would do that. The book comes out September 18th, so don't be scared away by the price on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. That will come down. Uh, so no worries there. You don't owe anything at this point. So you, you just pre-order the book and you get the giveaways and you enter the contest and you haven't spent one red cent yet. So, I mean, how good is that? All right. So let's talk about today's episode, and it's dealing with the American War for Independence. Of course, this podcast is airing on July 4th, so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about something dealing with that particular event. Uh, and the thing I want to talk about is something that actually Tom Woods alluded to in, a, in an email he sent out uh, a few days back about the American War for Independence. And it's that issue that, you know, when you're in grade school and, of course, and uh, even all the way up through high school, you get the, the idea that the American War for Independence was some type of tax revolt. Now, of course, that's certainly part of it, but the major part of the American War for Independence that's often overlooked is that it really wasn't a, a pushback against taxes. In fact, the Tea Act, for example, wasn't resisted because it was a tax on tea. It was resisted because there wasn't a tax on certain tea, and that was the British East India Tea, 
And so that tea was not taxed, and it was essentially forming a, monop a monopoly on the, uh, on the tea trade in America for the, for the British East India Company. So that's why that, that particular uh, event began, because American colonists were afraid of what would happen should the British East India Company get a monopoly on the tea trade while all other tea was taxed. So it wasn't a tax revolt there. It was the absence of a tax that people were worried about. And of course, there was some concern about the Stamp Act and, and these type of laws that were passed unconstitutionally. But that is the key to all of this. The American War for Independence was a constitutional revolt. And so let me get into that today, because I think this is the key to understanding the entire situation leading up to independence in 1776. And not just that, understanding the U.S. constitutional structure because we've had two constitutions for the general government. One is the Articles of Confederation. The other is the Constitution for the United States. And it is the Constitution for the United States. And that's very important because that's what it says in the text. We often say it's the United States Constitution. No, it's the Constitution for the United States. So we have these two constitutions for the general government. Of course, we have all these state constitutions too. But the important thing to understand about the entire lead up to the war in the 10 years that preceded the war, and then the period after the war, and of course, putting the Declaration within context as well. And I'm going to talk about that in Thursday's podcast, and is the Declaration the key to understanding American government? I'm going to say yes and no, but I'm going to talk about a book that has to deal with that. So it's the key to understanding all of these things, this relationship between the British crown and the parliament and the colonies, is the key to understanding our entire federal structure in America. And there's a particular book that focuses on this issue, and it's entitled The Constitutional Origins of the American Revolution. It's written by the eminent historian Jack Green. He's a great colonial historian, and this book was actually published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, you can get it in paperback form. Um, it's not very old. I can't remember the exact publication date. Let me look on it here. It's, it was published in 2011, so not that long ago, about six years ago now. But it is an excellent book, and I think one of the best for really getting to the heart of what was going on here in 1776 and 1775, and in the years preceding that, 1764 to 1775. That 11-year crisis that took place in the American colonies. And it wasn't just in the American colonies where this was going on. It was also in places like Bermuda and Ireland. This was the way that, um, that British colonists looked at the British imperial system. So first and foremost, how did that system work or how was it supposed to work? Now, you start seeing British colonies, of course, in the Americas with the founding of Jamestown in 1607. And I talked about that on the last podcast, the, the the story of the sea venture and resupplying Jamestown. But uh, Jamestown was the first permanent English colony in, in British North America. But they also had other colonial interests in the Caribbean. Of course, you had Ireland, which originally was a British colony. And so this imperial structure is being formed in the 17th and then into the 18th century. How did the central authority, meaning the parliament in London and the king, deal with the colonies? And then how did the colonies view themselves in relation to the parliament and the king? So when you look at Jamestown and you look at Plymouth or any of the other 13, we'll just, we'll just focus on British North America. We're not going to bring in the other colonies, but they all, they all viewed things this way. So when you look at these 13 colonies, 
and how they were established. Many of them were established as proprietary colonies, meaning that the uh, crown essentially gave a proprietary company, a, a, you know, a, a private enterprise, land, or at least a charter for land in the New World. And this company went out and they footed the entire bill. And they also appointed the directors and the governors and these type of things because that was, under, that was how the system worked. These were proprietary colonies. Now, you did have royal colonies. Royal colonies are where the king would then appoint the governor. And the way the system worked is that these proprietary colonies, almost all of them, would become royal colonies by the time we got to independence in 1776. So the king would have direct control of the colonies. And essentially, that's how the colonists looked at the structure. They actually, at one point, the reason they appealed to the kings because they viewed themselves as part of the king's domain, right? This was the royal domain. Parliament had no control over it. So that's one part of the American War for Independence that's often missed. One of the reasons why the colonists believed that Parliament was acting unjustly or unconstitutionally is because they thought Parliament really had no control over the colonies because they weren't represented in London. Only the king had direct control of the colonies because the king appointed the royal governor and then, of course, the royal governor ruled instead of the king. However, each one of these colonies also had local legislatures. And these local legislatures, for over 100 years, dealt with every bit of minutia in these colonies. They printed their own money. They set their own taxing policies at times. They had their own legal policies. Uh, in fact, if you look at Massachusetts, this is what Jefferson called the Ward Republics, each one of these little towns in Massachusetts had its own constitution. These colonies were essentially independent of Parliament outside of regulating international commerce and defense. That's how the colonists viewed the imperial structure, the constitutional imperial structure moving forward. So what happened was when salutary neglect ended, when you had the first law, the, the, um, the Sugar Act, which was the first law for raising revenue exclusively in the colonies, and of course uh, later you had the Stamp Act and uh, you started getting these direct taxes. But when you had these laws, the colonists thought these things were unconstitutional because they had no representation in that parliament, and the colonies themselves handled all domestic affairs. That was the imperial structure. So the colonies were essentially independent, little independent countries running around out there, except the parliament and the king, or at least the king, in the colonist view, could regulate trade and also defend the colonies. So they expected to have the support of the crown when it came to defending the frontiers. If you look at, for example, uh, Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, why did Bacon's Rebellion begin in Virginia? Well, one of the reasons is because the governor of Virginia was not defending the frontier. And, of course, the governor of Virginia was the agent of the king, William Barclay. William Barclay was the king's representative in uh in Virginia. And so when or when Barclay was not doing the bidding of the royal government and following what they should follow, which was defending the frontier, 
Bacon took it upon himself, and Bacon was a, a cousin of the, of the governor. Bacon took it upon himself to overthrow the governor because they weren't following or weren't doing their job. They weren't following the imperial structure properly. Now, of course, there were other issues going on there, too. Their taxes were too high on the frontier. and uh, There were some other problems. But that's what the governor was supposed to do defend the colonies from attack, whether it was attack from the French or the Spanish or the Indian tribes on the frontier. It didn't matter. That's what would have to happen on the frontier. And this was the role of the imperial state in dealing with the colonies. But when it came to things like uh, what were the local laws in regard to property rights? Well, they did follow the English common law. I mean, the, the, the courts were established based on English custom and precedent. But the fact is, they had their own local customs and constitutions as well. And in fact, leading up to the American War for Independence, uh, when you look at Virginia again, a very interesting situation, the elected sheriffs and also the courts in the counties could simply refuse to enforce the laws that were passed in uh, the central authority there in Virginia, whether it was in Williamsburg or eventually Richmond. Uh, they would just refuse to enforce those things because they violated local custom and precedent. So that was essentially nullification. And moving up to the period of time that we have the American War for Independence, you saw nullification movements throughout the colonies. In Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in Virginia, these things happened all the time when the colonial legislatures would pass laws that the people of those colonies found repugnant to local custom and precedent. They just wouldn't enforce it. And that was because these colonies were very decentralized. And not only that, the imperial structure itself was very decentralized. So this really was a constitutional crisis. The British Parliament was starting to say, no, 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 we can assert our authority here because we have control of the colonies. But the colonists were saying, no, that violates the imperial structure that we've come to know. Now, we have to understand the British Constitution is an unwritten constitution. It is not like the U.S. Constitution, where the powers are written and then codified, defined, and contained within the powers listed. The British Constitution is unwritten, so it has to do with custom and precedent. But in this particular situation, we now have the Parliament violating the custom and precedent of the colonies. So, Jack Green is exactly right. When you look at the situation brewing in the colonies and how this was viewed, and this is a wonderful book. He has he's done tremendous amounts of research all over the British Empire about the imperial structure. It was the imperial structure that was being contested in the colonies now in 1775 and the lead up to the war. That was the real issue. And so to the Americans, the central authority had two defined roles. Again, regulating international trade and defending from foreign attack. That was the role of the central authority. So let's carry that narrative forward. So we get to the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776. The most important paragraph in that document is not the first sentence or the second paragraph that gets into the ideas that all men are created equal and all that, or even the indictment of the king. And if you look at the structure of the Declaration, it's, it's mirrored very closely to that of the English Bill of Rights of 1688, which was also an indictment of the king. 
But you get to the end of the document, and here Jefferson outlines what American government is going to be. And this is why I say that the Declaration is the foundation of American government, and it is not. Because pointing to that second paragraph is idiotic when it comes to deciding what American government would be, because that had no bearing on American government whatsoever. So you get to the last paragraph, but I'll talk about that in the next podcast. You get to the last paragraph, and Jefferson clearly says that these united colonies are and of all right to be free and independent states. Now, the choice of state was an important decision, because a state, as he says, the state of Great Britain is equal, essentially, to the state of Virginia and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and New York and on down the line. Each state was sovereign. There were 13 peace treaties at the end of the war in 1783. There was not one peace treaty. There were 13 peace treaties because each state was recognized independently. So oftentimes you'll have people like Joseph Story and uh, all these other nationalists say, and uh, James Wilson, well, uh, the col- the, uh, the Union preceded the col- preceded the, the, uh, the independence. There was a Union before that. And uh, uh, th- th- there's always been a union. This whole idea these things were independent states is just not true. There were, the union came first. And they'll point to that phrase, these united colonies are enough right ought to be. Well, the colonies were united under the British Empire. They weren't independent at that point like they would be after they declared their independence. In fact, Delaware not only declared its independence from the British, declared its independence from Pennsylvania at the same time. So, the United yes, they were united in the British Empire. Everything in the British Empire is united. So there was no union of the states or colonies like we're thinking of until we get to the Articles of Confederation. In fact, if there was a union already, that's very curious because Benjamin Franklin proposed a union in 1754. It was called the Albany Plan of Union. And if Benjamin Franklin thought the union already existed in 1754, then why would he propose a plan of union? And he said at that point, well, gee, uh, this is a good idea. And in fact, the first American political cartoon was drawn at that point by Benjamin Franklin. This would be a good idea, but you know what the problem is? All of these colonies are too provincial. They're too narrow-minded. They're just focused on themselves, and they're suspicious of the other colonies. Again, there's no union. So when people like Joseph Story say that, or or uh, James Wilson, and in fact, this is a key part of my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. It's in there. I attack Joseph Story with uh, both barrels. So you're going to want to get that part. That's the second half of the book. Uh, but when you... When you look at this, it's just complete a complete fabrication of history. That word United Colonies means nothing, but the fact that each state was going to be independent does mean something. Because as we move forward, then we get the first governing document for the United States general government, the Articles of Confederation. It was ratified in 1781, first written and proposed by John Dickinson in 1776. So the Declaration, other than that, statement that we're going to have independent states in North America has no bearing on American government. But we do get the Articles of Confederation. Now, here's another thing. People would say, oh, yeah, the Articles of Confederation. Oh, you're going to bring that. It's going to blow up your entire argument because it was the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Don't you know, you hayseed? Right. So we've got the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. 
It is a contract between the states, a compact, and is perpetual because it has no end date. They didn't write in, we're going to have this union for five years, and then we're going to dissolve. Every contract is meant to be perpetual unless it has an express, express end date. But that doesn't mean it can't be void. We have contracts that are meant to be perpetual all the time. Business contracts, marriage contracts, all kinds of things. And, of course, at some point, if one party wants out of the business or whatever the, the social contract, whatever it is, the party can withdraw from that contract. We, we accept that in American contract law. But for some reason, the Constitution... Doesn't, doesn't fit that. Now, that's a whole other discussion on secession, which I've already done. But uh, So we have the Articles of Confederation. Now, what was the role of the central authority in the Articles of Confederation? Pretty simple. It was to essentially regulate trade and defend this union. But it had very limited taxing authority. Why? Because the colonies had existed in an imperial structure like that. The colonies, or the states now, set the taxes. That's it. It followed the model of the British imperial system. So we have a central authority that's extremely weak, other than regulating trade. And even that, it was only international trade, not trade among the states. That could be done by the states themselves. And it was defending the frontiers, which it did not do very well. So this is why people had a problem with the colony with the Articles of Confederation. Some people. Now, there's also a, a myth out there that everyone was unhappy with the Articles. It's simply not true. There are people that thought the Articles worked just fine. Namely, Patrick Henry, for example. He think the Articles were broken. And there were others that said, you know, wh what are we doing here? Now, when you look at what happened, though, in 1787, when you get to the Philadelphia Convention, we're going to have a new central government. Sort of. Some people would say that the Articles, or I'm sorry, the Constitution, showed that you can secede from the central authority because essentially the state seceded from the Articles and then reformed another union under the, you know, under the Constitution for the United States. Now, that's true to an extent, but I think when you look at the preamble to the Constitution, there's one thing that's clear about that, that it says... We the people of the United States. Now, of course, the idea there was that it was we the people of the states of, but they didn't know who was going to ratify the thing and who would even be part of it, so they couldn't list all the states. In order to form a more perfect union, a union of what? A union of states. A more perfect union than existed under the Articles. It's the same union. So the union hasn't changed. It's still a union of states where the central authority, if you look at the powers that are listed in Article 1, Section 8, those particular powers are the only powers a central authority has, and most of them deal with defense and commerce. Nothing else. In fact, when you look at that, uh, for example, people will say, well, yeah, but you got the general welfare clause there in Article 1, Section 8, right at the beginning. You got it right there. Okay, Roger Sherman explained what that meant, and they lifted that from the Articles of Confederation, and it meant commerce and defense. That's what he said. This was the idea of the central authority, the structure of union, and what the central authority could do. Because if any of these men thought, for example, if Roger Sherman in Connecticut believed that South Carolina could legislate for the internal affairs of Connecticut, he never would have supported the Constitution. And on vice versa, if South Carolina believed that Massachusetts or Connecticut could could 
could regulate their internal affairs, they never would have ratified the Constitution. In fact, the whole idea of a veto over the states was brought up in the Philadelphia Convention and expressly rejected. Uh, John Rutledge of South Carolina said that alone ought to damn the Constitution, that was the exact phrase that he used, if they got a, a negative over state law. There was going to be nothing of the sort. The states would have complete control over their domestic concerns. And I point to uh, Tench Cox, who wrote a wonderful uh, series of essays during the time when the Constitution was going through ratification, where he talked about all the things the central government could do and all the things that the states could do. And there wasn't much the central authority could do, and there was a whole lot that the states could do. And I, I point back to this. It was, it was actually in, in, under the pen name a Freeman, and a Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N, a Freeman. And so I often refer back to those essays, and people will say, well, who cares about Tench Cox? He's not Alexander Hamilton or James Madison or John Jay. He's nobody. That's not true. Tench Cox was a pretty important guy in the founding generation. Uh, he had served in various positions in the general government, uh, and he was a well-recognized, particularly in Pennsylvania, writer and a, a statesman. So Tench Cox wasn't a nobody. Uh, he just didn't have the same stature later on as, say, Madison or Hamilton or Jay, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't important. So looking at when, and he wrote very actively in support of the Constitution. So a lot of people read his stuff and they said, yeah, this is what we're going to think the Constitution is going to do. And so this is what it will do. So it's important to understand how these people were arguing for the Constitution because essentially what they're doing, and I'm going to go wrap back around here to the American War for Independence, they're following the same idea as the constitutional crisis that created the American War for Independence. When the central authority abused its power, meaning it tried to do things it didn't have the constitutional authority to do, the people of the colonies, later the states, decided that they had to do something about that central authority. This is still our debate in America today. Now, the American people look at it that way. Of course, the establishment doesn't. They just think they can do whatever they want. And so there's a vast disconnect between the establishment and Washington the political class. And of course, all of us schlubs down here uh, in, uh, in real America. Because we want the central authority, particularly people that are you know, more libertarian or paleoconservative or these, these type of people, people that believe in, in a limited central government, we want the government to do as little as possible, to follow the powers that, it's, that are defined in the Constitution, delegated by Article 1, Section 8, and of course, the 10th Amendment codifying that. We want to ensure that those powers are the only one the general government goes out and, and does. But, of course, uh, we've got a situation where the general government decides, just like the British Parliament did in 1775 and 4 and 3 and 1768 and 1767, the Parliament decides it can do whatever it wants because it can rule, as Jefferson said in the Declaration, in all cases whatsoever for the colonies. That was a key phrase in that. This is the same thing that uh, Tom Paine wrote in the American Crisis. If the government can rule for you in all cases whatsoever, then it has unlimited power. And the general government today in Washington, D.C. believes it can do just that. So on my email list the other day, I put out a, you know, I said, well, you know, in reality, what's the point of even having the state governments anymore? And there was a, a legislator in the state of Oklahoma who actually introduced a bill tongue-in-cheek, saying we're just going to become the federal district of Oklahoma 
Because what's the point of even passing laws? It's just wasting taxpayer dollars when the general government can just overrule everything that we do. So why even have a state government? If everyone thinks the central authority should handle education and uh, health and whatever, whatever other problem we have, transportation, take your pick. Well, then why even have the state governments dealing with this? It's just another level of taxation. And so why have it? I think Hamilton would agree with that station, so uh, with that statement. So hashtag blame Hamilton. I mean, he would. He wanted to reduce the state to corporate states to corporations. Said as much in June of 1787 in the Philadelphia Convention. But of course, that's not what the founding generation wanted, and that's not the structure that we had for the general government, either in the Articles of Confederation or the Constitution or the imperial structure that was in place before the American War for Independence. It was a resistance to a parliament that had gone beyond its constituted authority that drove the American colonists to independence, to seek independence, because that central authority was being obnoxious and unconstitutional. So when we start talking about these ideas, I think it's not sufficient to say, oh, it's a tax revolt, because then you're going, you're just a right winger, don't want to pay taxes. That's all. No, you can say, well, you know, the problem was the, the parliament was passing unconstitutional legislation. And so the American colonists decided to alter or abolish that government because, as Jefferson said, it was their right and their duty to do so. Because all of the talking didn't matter. Now, we can talk about how we can alter or abolish the government in D.C. today. You can have elections, you can have the states grow a backbone and actually stand up to the central to central authority. There are all kinds of ways to, to look at altering or abolishing the government in D.C. Uh, and thankfully, I think that through things like this, you know, this, this can be very peaceful. It doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be anything like people say it is. I mean, as if more and more people start saying, look, this thing was peaceful in the Soviet Union, a much more militant state than the United States has ever been. So people just say, enough. You know, we're not going to agree with your unconstitutional laws. We're just not going to follow them anymore. That's just simple. That's peaceful. That is altering or abolishing the system. We can vote new people in that think the right way. Or, as I've often said in this podcast, you can think locally and act locally. And you can start taking things under control in your own life. You can simply yourself withdraw from the system and just say, you know, I'm just going to do what I... Now, of course, you got to pay your taxes and all those kind of things. But uh, you can make that, that general government as minimal in your life as you can. And I think that's uh, one of the keys to thinking locally and acting locally. So the colonists in 1776, what were they doing? They were thinking locally and acting locally. They were saying, you know what the problem is? That central authority is violating its, constituted, uh, its, its constitutional powers, and we're going to take matters into our own hands, just like uh, what happened in 1861 uh, when the southern states seceded. That was the point. We can argue about what those things that they were afraid of, but in reality, the point was, they were saying, you know what, we think the central authority is going to exceed its constituted powers, and so we are just going to withdraw from the Union. Uh, there is, that is purely American, 100% American. And so today, on July 4th, Independence Day, that's really what we're celebrating here. We're celebrating the act against 
unconstitutional authority by a central government that had gone beyond its delegated powers. Now, of course, in America, we codify those powers. They're written down in Britain. They don't do that, which makes our case stronger. Their case weaker, but it makes our case stronger. Think about that in America. They didn't have those written powers. They were saying, well, this is beyond custom and precedent. Now we can actually look at the document and say, you're going beyond the, you're going beyond the delegated powers. It's written down. You can't go beyond that. So we actually have that on our side that the men in 1776 did not have. That should make our case easier. But you have to know the situation. You can't just use the old platitudes, well, you know, it's a tax revolt. Or no taxation without representation. You can't do that. You have to talk about this thing as a constitutional crisis because it makes our side that much stronger. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Hope you enjoy your July 4th, and I'll see you next time on The Brian Effect.